We are starting, though, with an announcement that was made quietly on Friday afternoon. Vancouver Police putting out a news release about the updates to the handcuffing policy for that department, saying that the Vancouver Police Board undertook a review of the previous handcuffing policy back in January of 2020, and that review included an examination of existing policy, training, case law, and legal authorities surrounding the application of handcuffs. Now, this policy policy actually came into effect in 2021. However, the update was just announced on Friday, again, partially, according to VPD, because of the handcuffing of retired Supreme Court Justice Selwyn Romley, which happened in Vancouver. For about a minute, and it was embarrassing because it's a public place, uh, and, uh, you know, that place is really busy at that time of the morning. I can't help but think if it's an 81-year-old white man, uh, regardless of whether I fit the description or not, they wouldn't have put him in handcuffs. That was retired Justice Selwyn Romilly speaking with Global News and another high-profile case involving handcuffs. You will recall Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter outside of the Bank of Montreal in Vancouver. So hard to see her being handcuffed out in the street in Vancouver. Well, we want to talk more about the changing of this policy. Joining me to do that is Terry TG, the Regional Chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. When you see this and see that this policy has been changed, what is your reaction to that? Well, I think, you know, really looking at the, the policy itself, it is a step in the right direction, considering the, the two situations you uh, mentioned in 2021, uh, uh, Justice Romley, and also um, 2019, December 2019, uh, Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter being arrest, uh, arrested and handcuffed. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, the, the review is a, a really a long time coming, and uh, Perhaps just uh, taking a, a quick look at it, I, I think it is a, a step in the right direction. Uh, these two cases that are being referenced are high-profile cases, and certainly they did get a lot of attention. But previous to this policy change, do you think people were being targeted or were more likely to be handcuffed based on what they looked like? I think just uh, policing in general, uh, whether it's Vancouver Police, Department, RCMP, uh, Municipal and, and Provincial Police Departments, I, I think as an Indigenous person, and uh, I do hold this file at, at the Assembly of First Nations, we do see many, many instances where, uh, you know, First Nations are uh, are arrested or handcuffed for, for a no good reason, and uh I think, you know, more and more we're, we're seeing this and, and I think all police departments and uh, should be reviewing their policies on handcuffing. And, and more importantly, I think a review of, of their, I, I think really looking at the departments in terms of, of racism and, and profiling is, is a real uh, issue with, with policing in general.
The review as well, or the the release from Vancouver police says that officers must consider a person's age, ethnicity, and the seriousness of an alleged incident prior to applying handcuffs. This is according to the updated handcuffing policy and that they must have lawful authority that is objectively reasonable. Um, and it goes on proportionate to the potential risk of harm the officer faces. Uh, it's one thing to have that policy, another to make sure that officers are following that policy. Uh, do you think that's p- perhaps also where more education comes in? Well, certainly more education. And, uh, you know, you, we could have as, as great a policy as, as we can, but we don't know uh, in terms of, of the officer if the training took uh, or what kind of training uh, is uh, behind all of this policy. And that's uh, because in a situation uh, such as uh, some of these that, that we're uh, using as an example, uh, we don't know uh, in terms of uh, if if that officer is, is uh, training up to date or or even if they're paying attention during training. So education training is, is vitally important, uh, is, especially nowadays in, in terms of uh, what we're seeing and the rise in um, uh, issues with with mental health, with uh, the opioid crisis and, and drugs. Uh, I think uh, training is going going to be more and more important as as uh, you know uh, we're expected. Uh, there's a lot of expectations of police officers to uh, really, I suppose, you know, look at at the situation and make sure that the the appropriate force is used and or use of handcuffs. We're, and I'm, I'm glad you pointed out other jurisdictions as well and other departments, because certainly we're not only talking about to what's happening with the Vancouver Police Department. It just happens that this is the policy of the VPD that was released. Do you think things are changing, though, as we see different uh, police departments, including VPD, uh, becoming more diverse, uh, becoming uh, hiring uh, more people that are part of the force that are Indigenous and are from different backgrounds? Well, over the last several years, we're, we're seeing also many cases where Indigenous peoples and, and perhaps um, other peoples uh, are uh, being arrested, brought to um, incarcerated to jail and, and dying in, in custody and uh, even situations, for example, uh, in Prince George, a Dale Culver situation who was, uh, uh, wasn't arrested for any reason um, other than uh, to... to really, I would say, profiling and, and was arrested by five officers and he succumbed to his injuries and uh, died. So there's five police officers being charged, two with manslaughter, three uh, with uh, obstruction of justice. So, you know, and, and that's in the last um, five years. There's uh, another situation uh, during the pandemic, 2020, uh, of Edward Patrick, and, uh, who was related to me. And he uh, died in custody, and, and this is really an excessive use of force. Uh, I, I think, you know, in, in many of the cases uh, that we see, it's, it's, it, 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 in terms of the situation, uh, you know, it's hard, difficult to, to know and understand why sometimes police officers use uh, excessive use of force beyond just handcuffing. And uh, it's uh, because ultimately the situation can exceed to, a, you know, to death of the person. So uh, in the end, uh, it does come down to a lot of uh, situations with, with the police uh, department and, and also if they have proper training uh, situation, 
and and in, and in this case, when we're talking about policies, uh, use of policy, it does come down to the discretion, as it says here, of the police officers. One thing I could uh, also identify with this, uh, just reading the um, policy itself, is that uh, it states that it is uh, this can't protect the police officers. So. Uh, in terms of responsibility, so it uh, the it certainly identifies that the officer is accountable for his or her actions. So ultimately, perhaps that gives uh, a, a second thought to you know is this an appropriate use of of handcuffing, appropriate use of force because ultimately they can be held accountable and re- and held responsible for for their actions. Right. And and I know you referenced or when you mentioned uh, the Dale Culver uh, story, and we've certainly been watching that uh, involving with the Prince George RCMP and with the charging of the, of the officers and that case in the courts. Uh, when we when we take a look at that kind of the bigger picture, like you said, of, of excessive use of force and and when that happens, do, do you think that that's an argument as well in that, again, it's one thing to have a handcuffing policy and to have policies on paper. Is it perhaps another argument, though, for body cameras? for actual documentation of how things unfold? Well, I think, yeah, certainly um, maybe body cameras would uh, assist and help uh, in terms of, uh, you know, better training and and what have you. But I think overall policing in general, and and this is the conversation we're having right now uh, with the um, uh, former chief of police uh, uh, commissioner, Brenda Lucky, and and a number of uh, high-level dis- discussions on, on policing itself. I, I think it's really, a, uh, you know, a situation and, uh, you know, a time where there's a huge spotlight on, on policing, uh, especially Indigenous peoples and perhaps uh, uh, other minorities uh, that, that we're seeing these very high-profile cases where there is uh, death in custody or excessive use of, of force, uh, such as perhaps handcuffing, I mean, you know, the Maxwell Johnson case uh, with his granddaughter is, a, a, you know, a, a perfect case to to see that was it necessary to have handcuffs? They were just trying to open a bank account. And uh, I think review of not only uh, internal policies, but uh, I think uh, engagement with indigenous peoples. Right now we're working on, uh, you know, First Nations taking over jurisdiction, over policing, and, and that discussion is, is just beginning. And, and more resources to for Indigenous peoples in terms of policing so we can get better policing, uh, whether it's a tripartite agreement, tripartite agreements here in British Columbia or like the Statlam who have their own policing or, or any other situation in this country where Indigenous peoples are, are in charge of their own policing. All right. Well, it's uh, certainly a bigger conversation and and hopefully we can get into that conversation again. But we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Terry TG, thank you so much for making the time and for joining the show today. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, a nonprofit organization that is made up of hundreds of high school students has been busy supporting people throughout Vancouver's downtown east side. It started a few years ago with just a few students trying to make a difference, and it has definitely grown. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this are the uh, executive directors of Project Hastings, Nicholas Zhang and Jeffrey Zhang. Thank you both so much for being here today. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Well, we've thank been you for having us. Yes, no, th- thank you as well. We, we've been talking so much about the tents that are being removed on parts of East Hastings and what's been happening in that neighborhood. And I know your group has been very busy. So uh, I'm not sure which one of you, but if one of you wants to start and maybe give us a bit of background about how this all started. Yeah, for sure. So I can start about that. Uh, so. Well, uh, for starters, we are the Project Hastings Foundation. So we're just a nonprofit organization made out of mostly high school students in uh, the Vancouver Lower Mainland area, and we attend uh, secondary schools in the Vancouver area. So our organization and initiative started back in 2020 when Jeffrey and I wanted to just kind of get back to the community while also involving other high school students uh, along with the effort. So this is how Project Hastings came to fruition. We gathered a few volunteers. Uh, we gathered a few volunteers and started our meal uh, distributions. Uh, and since then, we have ramped up to over 250 volunteers in our organization, uh, distributing around 500 meals per uh, 500 meals per event. Uh, by year end, we estimate to be distributing around 40,000 meals uh, since 2020. And also just speaking to uh, the current decampments as well as what is happening in the downtown east side, we have employed our volunteers as well as deployed staff members to currently observe, investigate, as well as assess the needs of what uh, of what the community members currently uh, require in the downtown east side. Uh, we stand with the notion that uh, the government should uh, continue on focusing on facilities that contribute to the well-being of the community. Uh, this includes allocating more shelter space, continue operations with safe supply and other uh, uh, supporting initiatives. Uh, I'm not sure if Jeffrey wants to add on. Uh, has it become more challenging since starting a few years ago? And again, I know you just you had a few students that came out and were doing this. What have you seen, though, as far as, as challenges and, and for, for your group to try and fill those needs? Yeah, so for the challenges that we have came across was definitely first funding as well as just gathering the amount of volunteers. So at first for funding, when we first started, we were just hosting fundraisers as well as Krispy Kreme fundraisers to gather funding and whatnot. And as we have progressed, we have had some challenges and obstacles with uh, funding. We have figured out that the fundraisers weren't enough, so we started reaching out to local businesses, organizations, as well as applying for government uh, provincial grants. And this has uh, assisted us with many of our events uh, until now. And we look forward to continue um, cooperating with these local businesses. Now, secondly, for volunteers, we have not only tapped into our secondary school resources, but we have also been speaking with elementary schools as well as elementary school teachers uh, to see if they would be interested in involving uh, their students in coming to our events. Uh, and whatnot. And how do you decide exactly where to set up and where to distribute the sandwiches and the other meals that that you offer up to people? Yeah, so how we decide is first we uh, always do kind of a preliminary check uh, before each event. Uh, We take a look at the seasonal requests and needs of the community as well as where people are, where the most people are located. So uh, recently, we have done distributions in Pigeon Park in downtown Eastside, where we have set up our stands and started distributing uh, distributing warm meals from Pigeon Park, as well as we also have our mobile volunteers who carry carts as well as 
uh, bins, and we just have them walk along the streets of East Hastings uh, to distribute uh, these warm meals. So our initiative covers uh, and covers the entire breadth of the downtown Eastside area. And uh, I'm not sure who wants to answer this one, but what kind of a response do you get from people when you approach them or when you're in the neighborhood? Uh, Jeffrey, do you want to take this one? Yeah, of course. Everybody's welcoming, as I've spoken before about this. We've always had a warm experience, nothing, no problems, because at the end of the day, people want food. These people are in their deepest and darkest situations. They have nothing to eat over the night, over the midnight. Uh, we're the only hope for them, uh, as we see. A lot of other organizations are helping out alongside with us. A lot of adults are also helping out giving out food. I think this is something that they're very grateful, and I think they will support us along the way. Right. And and with the volunteers, when you get people and students that sign up, is it basically, are, are they, do they know what they're signing up for, I, I suppose? I know that you and many of the others volunteer your time on weekends and other days off and breaks from school. Uh, is, it, is it what people are expecting when they join your group and when they start doing that? So for starters, uh, I've spoken with many volunteers uh, first-time volunteers with our organization. And before they came to our events, they said they only knew about the downtown east side from what was pictured uh, on social media, on the internet, uh, just crowds of people, uh, people that may uh, have not been uh, very kind or, or nice. But when they said they visited the downtown east side, they uh, experienced it as a comfortable place, as Jeffrey said. Everyone is very welcoming. Everyone is very grateful for us to be there, distributing the meals and everything. So I feel like there's always this kind of shift from before you come to one of our events to after you come to one of our events. And uh, volunteers, um, mostly secondary school volunteers, they get to learn what the downtown east side uh, actually is. And are you looking for more volunteers? Or are you always looking to kind of grow the group, the membership? Yes, of course. We're always looking for new volunteers, whether that be from elementary school or high school. Uh, we want youth to be involved in our initiative, uh, involve them in giving back and uh, distributing these meals and empowering the community. So how can people find out more then if they want to learn more about the organization and maybe get involved? Yeah, so for sure. So we have a few ways of uh, of reaching out to us. Uh, first is parkhastings.org. That's our website, as well as you can find us on various social media, uh, such as Instagram, we're project underscore Hastings, as well as on Facebook, we're just Project Hastings. And for funding as well, I would imagine too, I know that you've raised, uh, as you said, thousands of dollars, you've handed out thousands of meals. That's got to be a challenge as well, though, to keep that going and to keep that money coming in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and we're always looking for local businesses, local cooperations that uh, would like to donate to us, would like to donate either monetarily or contribute their in-kind goods. And we always look uh, highly favorably uh, upon uh, those that uh, do. And uh, yeah, we're reaching out to uh, these cooperations and businesses as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks both of you for joining us today and for talking more about this. And again, we can pass on the website if people want to learn more or get involved in this more. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining the show today. Yeah, thank Thank you so much. much.
You've likely heard the ads on this station. They were running against that proposed 6% tax that would have come in and taxed beer and other alcoholic beverages. It was part of the federal budget. It came in lower than that, around 2% instead. Not everybody happy with any kind of increase, but are we seeing the price of beer specifically going up, not only because of taxes, but because of some other factors as well? Well, joining me to talk more about this is Neil Reed, beer researcher and professor of geography and planning at the University of Toledo in Ohio. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Jill, I'm very happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I wish it was on a, a happier note, or perhaps we were talking maybe that uh, prices were going down, but that's that's not the case. And what is it? You've looked into this. So what are some of the other factors that are causing the prices to go up? Well, you know, like the beer industry is just like the rest of us, right? When we go to the grocery store, we're buying more for eggs and bread and milk. And when the breweries have to buy their inputs, the hops, the yeast, the barley, uh, you know, they're they're paying more for those things. And so the price of their inputs are going up. Obviously, transportation costs are going up with gas prices going up. So it costs more to transport those inputs to the brewery and you know even simple things like glassware you know that the glasses that they use in the brewery when you serve your beer they've got to replace those the price of those things are going up as well so they're but just like the rest of us are paying more for everything and everything too and and i know you've touched on this as well that we don't often think about the raw materials but those as well the the can or whatever it is that to your favorite beverage is coming in right so uh you know, there's been a big increase in demand for aluminum cans, especially COVID-19, because, you know, during COVID-19, a lot of these small craft breweries where you would go in, you'd sit down, you'd pour your beer. Well, you couldn't do that anymore. So those breweries had to kind of do a quick flip and had to uh, start to can that beer. And, you know, they could then sell it to you on a kind of grab-and-go basis. So there was a huge increase in demand for aluminum cans. The other thing is, you know, with all these uh, ready-to-drink malt beverages, uh, all of those things have appeared on the landscape in recent years, and all of those are in cans as well. So there's been this unprecedented uh, increase in demand for cans. And when demand goes up and supply is tight, then, you know, price goes up as well. And I remember reading about this too, or at least hearing about this, like you said, when we started seeing all of these other beverages coming on the market in cans as well, shortages of aluminum and actual shortages of cans because there were so many new new products on the market. Right, exactly. And, you know, that's something that in some ways, uh, you know, we, we didn't think about. We, we just assumed that, you know, you had, you had soft drinks like Coke and you had things like beer and you know, those were available in cans and, you know, suddenly you've got these new products which are also in cans as well. So in some ways it was unanticipated by the marketplace, I think. And uh, because of that, you know, that this uh, disconnect between supply and demand happened. And, you know, I think I read one figure that, you know, with the height of COVID, there was a, a can shortage of over 10 billion cans in the United States. So, uh, you know, those are some significant numbers. 
Wow, yeah, it's it's hard to even imagine uh, what that uh, many that many would look like uh, all in one place. Um, when, when, right. when, we, yeah, when we look at the, the prices, and, and you mentioned this, so the different factors, whether it's cost of fuel, uh, transportation, delivering, getting the product to, to, whether it's a craft brewery or to a liquor store, there must be a point, though, where maybe people will spend more. Certainly there are, there are craft beers that cost more. Uh, they're more expensive than, than maybe some of the bigger breweries or, or some of the, the more mass-produced beers, but there must be a point at which people are going to look at this and say, hold on a second, that's too much. Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting. Let me tell you what's kind of happening in the United States, and this may well be happening in Canada as well. But the market has really become what I call kind of bifurcated. Uh, folks that drink the mass-produced beers, a lot of them are kind of trading down to less expensive mass-produced beers. And But with a craft beer drinker, there's no such thing as trading down, right? Because once you, once you become a craft beer drinker, you don't go back. And so I think what craft beer drinkers are doing is they're being a little bit smarter with, with the way they spend their money. It's not so much about quantity. It's, it's more about quality. And, you know, the craft beer drinker tends to be more affluent consumer with more disposable income. So probably someone who feels a little bit more secure with regard to the kind of economic circumstances. So they may, I think many of them see craft beer as an affordable luxury and, you know, will continue to a large extent to, to, to buy that even when times are tough economically. What about then the other beer, which does, again, it tends to be cheaper. Maybe it's it's somebody that, that the budget allows for this certain brand or this certain amount. If that beer is going up too, that, that's got to uh, be a bit, of a, a bit of a hurt when you see what the price is. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, what those folks are doing is in, instead of buying, say, uh, well, in the U.S., instead of buying a Budweiser, which is, you know, a kind of mainstream mass-produced beer, they might kind of trade down to something like a Bush Light, which is the same style of beer. You know, it's an American pale lager, but but it's less expensive. So they're able to to save a couple of bucks by buying a very similar beer that's just not quite as pricey as the one they would normally normally purchase. So, and and I would imagine too. Then, then you're expecting that we will see consumer behaviors change or react to these prices as they keep going up. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think you will. Uh, you know, I think the other thing that people don't often talk about is, you know, people are consuming less beer, both in the U.S. and Canada. And th- this has to do with uh, kind of people more concerned about health and, and healthy lifestyle choices. And so we see that, you know, beer sales are going down both in the U.S. and Canada. So it's, it's not just because beer is becoming more expensive, which it is, but it's also because people are choosing to, not drink alcohol or drink less alcohol or drink an alcohol which is lower in alcohol by volume content. So there's there's also kind of societal changes taking place around the beer uh, consumption as well. But even if people switched to, say, a non-alcoholic beer, and certainly uh, there are a lot of craft breweries here that are putting out more types of non-alcoholic beer and, and a much better tasting non-alcoholic beer maybe than uh, you might uh, remember from 10, 20 years ago. But wouldn't those products also be subject to the same price increases if we're talking again about the raw materials and transportation, that kind of thing? Right, they're, they're subject to exactly the same same uh, price increases. You're exactly right. But again, I think because we're talking about a more 
affluent consumer, you know, they can they can basically ride out these these higher price increases. So, I mean, you might be be going to the the craft brewery and, and maybe you're paying an extra buck for your for your craft beer. You know, someone that's got a little bit more money, more disposable income, feels more secure in their job. They, they see that as an affordable luxury. And, you know, if they're going to cut back, they're probably going to cut back in other places in terms of the budget. Right. Uh, where do you see it going from here? Because I know as well, uh, you were talking about the, the fact that we actually, it wasn't that long ago, we were seeing beer prices kind of staying steady or in some cases even falling a bit. But it seems like that's a thing of the past. Yeah, you know, again, uh, I'm not an expert on inflation, but everything I've read about inflation is we're going we're gonna to see inflationary pressure, you know, through the end of 2023. Uh, it's going to come down gradually, but I think we're still going to see the impact of it, you know, for another eight or nine months. And probably going into 2024, we'll start to see uh, start to see some improvements. And, you know, hopefully what that'll mean is that, you know, those some of those prices will start to come down. Uh, and then, you know, we might see some relief in terms of what we're paying at the grocery store in the case of us in the U.S. or the liquor store in Canada. We might we might start to see some relief, to, you know, towards the end of the year. And and do you think when I know we're focusing a lot on beer and not that uh, people would consider that a necessity, although I'm sure some some people might, but you might put that on the list of of necessities. Uh, Does it kind of stand out or is it different because of all of those factors that you mentioned? So we might see a different uh, it take a bit of a different path than, say, some other groceries or other items. Yeah, you know, I I think, you know, everyone is getting sticker shock when 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 they go to the grocery store and, and including myself and so i think we're paying more attention to to prices and i think a lot of consumers are making decisions right i mean maybe maybe it's not organic eggs but just the non-organic you know maybe it's not the brand name bread but you know the the, the store brand bread so i think people are making these kind of substitutions trying to get the same product for you know, a little bit less. And again, with, with the mass-produced beer drinkers, they're doing that as well. They're, they're, you know, they're not buying the more expensive uh, mass-produced beer. They're, they're looking for something that's a little cheaper, uh, still the same alcohol content, but, you know, it's one of the, the sub-premium beers, if you like, that's produced by mass producers such as Anheuser-Busch in Bev. All right. Well, definitely uh, interesting looking at those numbers and uh, a bit uh, troubling for some people, for sure. Neil, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining the show. It was great talking with you. Great. Thank you very much. Well, for many people, not everyone, but for many people, today is a day off. It is a long weekend, whether you're celebrating Easter or not. That means for a lot of people, it was a time to get away. We certainly have seen busy ferry crossings and some lineups at the borders. So we thought it would be a good idea to check in and find out how things are going in Point Roberts. And Brian Calder is joining us once again, the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for covering us, Jill. Well, and I'm, happy Easter and stuff. And <laughs> to you as well. I wanted to check in with you uh, because I know you recently uh, wrote out uh, kind of a long, a long list uh, of concerns and things that are happening in Point Roberts. So I'm also curious, would this, under normal circumstances, is this 
long weekend generally a busy one for Point Roberts? Oh, boy, is it ever. Uh, spring break and the Easter break are big for us. They're basically the opening of our summer season. Cabins getting ready, people coming down, kids enjoying the outdoors, which we have plenty of here, and then, which is terrific. Didn't happen. Um, and you'll recall for the past two years, I think we started about two years ago, on your show we discussed people being creatures of habit, and our concern was that the risk of changing their patterns of habit uh, with an extensive border lockdown, i.e. more than four to six months, um, that their habits would change. And in our case, that has happened because of the length of the lockdown and people found alternate ways to uh, enjoy recreation and pick up parcels, etc. And we're down, uh, still down 40%, where others seem to be recovering, and thankfully um, we're happy to see that. We just wish it, it came to us as well, and it hasn't. We're still down 40% from pre-COVID 2018-2019 numbers for the past four months. We're, we're running about 60,000 when we'd normally do 100,000. Hmm. Uh, do you think, is part of it the weather being really kind of rainy and gross this weekend, or, or do you think it was already kind of the writing was already on the wall? Uh, the indications from November, December, January, February that we've got so far, we haven't seen March yet, that hasn't been published, but indicate that um, it wasn't there. Uh, the numbers aren't there for us. We did have some activity, but, I mean, we've seen lineups down the hill, uh, you know, literally for like half a mile, and we're seeing lineups of 20 cars, which isn't a lineup. Um, and occasionally, here and there, you'll see it, you know, to the top of the hill to Diefenbaker Park, but that's nothing for what we were used to, uh, as I say, 28, pre-COVID, 2018, 2019. And we're just struggling to figure out how we can change that and we're not getting any government help and i would suggest we're not getting any help at the border either i mean you'd almost think we were a threat to somebody the way people are interrogated at the border um and they where are you going to go when you get to point roberts i mean it's a delightful place and it's lovely but you aren't canoeing with your contraband to seattle uh, I mean, it's just bizarre that we are so over-governed by border crossing. It sort of, it applies, and I, can, I get it, that it applies to the whole 49th parallel, 5,500 miles of border. But we are an exception, um, and we are an exclave, only one of four in all of North America. And so... Uh, as a unique situation requires unique attention and unique solutions. And we're not getting anyone even trying to figure that out. And when you talk about that issue at the border crossing, then you're referring then to U.S. border guards. Uh, well, unfortunately, our Canadian ones can be difficult going back as well. Um, and and it's just, some of the questions are just beyond the pale. Um, they're, they're, they don't accomplish, and if they accomplish something, I mean, you know, we get issues like camping in a kiwi fruit and so on and so on. It's Point Roberts. It isn't, you know, 
going through to Seattle to infect millions or affect millions or whatever, they're coming to Point Roberts to consume what they bring and then going back home. I mean, it, and, it, and it's not being addressed. If someone could look at it and say, well, um, here's the threat for agriculture, but we don't have any here. Um, it's a threat for mad cow disease. We don't have any cows here, and we're not getting any. So to say one-size-fits-all mentality, it, it just, it, it's, um, it's not productive, and it's not humanitarian either. Uh, you also made uh, a point of talking about the governance, and I get it, uh, that it's a, it's a different kind of place, like you said, one of only a few of these t- types of places in on the continent, really. Uh, you talked about Point Roberts perhaps considering an alternate form of governance. So, so who, what does the governance look like now, and what would you perhaps like to see? Well, I, I mean, back, I think it says it all, uh, we read a, a, a publication called The Backstory, and he quotes in there the history of Point Roberts, a really, really good, good book. Um, and in it, he says in 1952, the governance being in Bellingham uh, for Whatcom County, which we're supposedly part of, although we're not connected, as you know, as an exclave, uh, they said uh, one of the council members that governed us at that time, they still do, different, different person, mind you, but it said at the council meeting, Point Roberts is our problem orphan child, and they've treated us as such ever since. They have no problem taking the taxes, but they give very little back for it. And we've got regulations, which we don't have time to go into now, that are beyond the pale. We've never had a, plan, a, a proper planning review for 30 years. 30 years. Vancouver does them every three months. Um, and we've never had an economic plan, uh, ever, ever. So how are we going to recover our economy if, if they're not even looking at it? I mean, not even looking. They don't even come over here. Our governing people come here twice a year. They're 50 miles away on two borders. They come twice a year. What can you learn about Point Roberts coming for four hours twice a year? And, and what we also need, and they're not doing, and we suggested this on your show a year ago, and we've said it a few other times and continue to say it, is that we need a post-mortem study on what went wrong with ArriveCan, what went wrong with both federal governments handling the border lockdown. And now SFU and Western Washington U have said they've got significant funding to do a study just on that topic. And (laughs) they've got significant money, and they say it'll take them two years to do it. Jill, you and I could do it in two months. Two months, not two years, and we'll do it for nothing. I mean, there's so many obvious violations of humanity and human rights that happened. Border guards deciding whether you're an essential risk or not to come through the border. They have no medical training. They didn't want the job in the first place, but Health Canada dumped it on them. And so you go to the border, and they're making a ruling on whether your impacted jaw, which is distended out three inches, you're in agony, whether you can go to Ladner to get the tooth pulled, but people can fly in. You can't drive in, mask, gloved, 
And so this is previous rules. Of right. course, it's since been opened the border, thank heavens. But here's a border guard saying, well, it's not essential. And this one lady friend of mine said, I asked them, I said, well, if this isn't essential, I can hardly talk. I've got an appointment of extraction and cut my jaw. And you're saying I can't do it, go back home. Where do I go from there? But what do you call essential? And he said, you have to be dying. Right. I mean, that's bizarre. Which, which is and awful. Which, which, yeah, abs- absolutely awful. But with those rules have now been lifted and with things open again, we only have about a minute left. But what do you see or what needs to be done? Like you said, yes, we're creatures of habit, but what needs to be done to get people back? That's the question. Nobody's addressing it but you and, and, and I on your show. We're trying to get someone to pay attention to us. Nothing. Nothing, Jill. Absolutely nothing is happening in that regard. Shameful. Absolutely shameful. All right. Well, Brian, we will continue talking to you about this and going through some of your ideas and seeing what could potentially be done in the future to to bring that economy and bring people back. We'll have to leave it there for today, though. But thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Jill, for your continued support. We appreciate it very much.